it's 12.03, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, first of all, um, I wanna thank everyone for being here to uh, join us in our Fearless Authenticity webcast. Today, we are focused on uh, education and authenticity. We have some amazing people with us today. I'd like to introduce Steve Spolar, Stantal Steve, school culture and climate expert and adjunct instructor at Rutgers. Say hi, Steve. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. Glad to be here. And Hannah Lee, who is a librarian and currently uh, employed at LAC Group. Hi, Hannah. Welcome. Hi, and small correction, it's actually with Cal State Dominguez Hills. Cal State Dominguez Hills. So I'm sorry about that. No um, worries. <laughs> but thank you for being here with us. Um, again, our focus is on authenticity. Oh, and there's a Ida. All right. Ida. Hi, Ida. We have Ida Lewis, who is curriculum uh, development design and also a French teacher at Lake Country Montessori School. Uh, bonjour, Ida. <laughs> so again, welcome to everyone. As far as our um, participants today, please uh, join us using the chat room, engage with our speakers, ask questions, leave comments. Um, and on that note, I'm going to turn it over to our Doctors of Authenticity, Dr. James Smith Jr. and Dr. Sherry Maloon. Thank you. Thank you, Sin. Dr. Sherry, good to see you again. You too. It's been too long. I've missed you. <laughs> I missed you. We got to get that muscle back. It's been a while, but no. I want to come back very quickly. So great to be working with you again. You too. I have a question for the group and we'll start with, 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 with Hannah. And it's the same question for all three of you. When did this education, professional education journey start for you? What was the trigger? What happened? What made you say, yes, I want to pursue a career in education? Um, <clears throat> for me, I believe it started with uh, when my local library moved from a card catalog to a computer catalog. I remember the <laughs> card catalog. <laughs> yeah. One day it was there and then another day it, there were a bunch of computers. And for me, it's, I think that was the tipping point of, oh, we can find information so easily now. Of course, back then, it's not as easily as it was now, um, is now, but it just opened up a new world for me. And mm -hmm. I, I just dove into it head first. Any regrets? Uh, my student loan says yes, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I no regrets about it at all. Otherwise. Thank you. Thank you. Ida, I had six years of French in grade school, and I can only remember how to count to 100. And thank you to Patti LaBelle for that song, Voulez-vous, whatever. That's what I remember. But how about you? When did, when did you decide professionally that education was the field that you were going to pursue? Well, um, growing up, uh, in Senegal, and the first of our family was a teacher. I think that kind of uh, showed me the way a little bit, and I started just playing around with it, just helping around uh, during summer summer sessions that, that I held, I mean, summer courses that I held in the neighborhood school. But uh, it was just um, forgotten after that. And mm -hmm. it's only when I 
stumbled into Montessori that the founders of my school thought that I was the one they were looking for and sponsored me to take the training and kept me here since then. Tell me about that stumble. You said you stumbled. What did that look like? (laughs) Well, I was a student at the University of Dakar, Senegal, and um, I was also part of the founding members of a human rights, the first African human rights organization. And I was working that year with refugees. And one of them brought a pamphlet that read, um, teach, live and teach in the United States. And it was in the middle of my finals at the U and we already had missed one half of the school year because they were on strike. So that was my last chance. And I did not at all want to embark in that. I said, look, I have two hours before I enter my final, my oral um, test here. So I don't have time for this and I don't want to go to the United States. They speak English, I speak French. (laughs) So that was the first thing. (laughs) And he was the one basically who filled out um, that application, that pre-application I call it, and sent it in. And the institute that was based in California called me and said, well, you're pre-selected. And I was like, what? That's stumble. Yes, so that's, that's really what I mean by that. So it, awesome. everything just uh, came together without my even making a decision. Yeah, sometimes we're not in control. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Stand tall, Steve. How about you? When did you say, yep, education's for me? Yeah, well, there's two different spots. There was the spot for education's for me, and there was a spot that I decided to become a school administrator. There was two different things. So the first spot was um, when I was in high school, I was really big into art. I'm an artist, um, and I was going to go to school for commercial art. I wanted to be a commercial artist, um, very good at drawing and painting and things like that. Um, and so I was looking at this one school, Kutztown University. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to go there is plain and simple. They had a pamphlet for the Black Student Union, the only school that ever said anything for a Black Student Union. So I was like, I want to go there. That, I mean, seriously, that was it. And so I said to my mom, mom, I'm going to go outside. We had a basketball hoop in the front. We lived in a cul-de-sac. So I'm going to go shoot some hoops. Um, and when I come back in, we'll fill out the application. And she's like, all right, no problem. So I went out there to go shoot some hoops. Two kids came riding their bikes around. They were little 10-year-old kids. I was a high school senior. Uh, Keith and Steve. That's what the kids name. I won't forget their names. And they said, can we play? I'm like, yeah, you can play. All right, you two versus me, took a little rock, made a line on the ground. I can't shoot past this line with one hand behind my back. We played for two hours. We had a blast. Wow. I went in, got some sodas. We sat on a curb. We, I mean, I had the most fun with these two kids. When they were done, it went in, they left. I went inside. I said to my mom, I says, Mom, I think I want to be a teacher. And my mom said, oh, thank God. I was like, what? And she's like, oh, I was worried you're going to go to college and do this art thing, commercial artist. I was like, what do you mean? I don't think I said, you've been a teacher your whole life. Mm. You're a school counselor. Whatever kids are around you, 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 you flock to them. You teach anybody that you want. That's who you are. And I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? She said, if I had told you, you wouldn't have done it. And I was. I was arrogant. 
I was. <laughs> and so she said, and so we sat down, we filled out that application for art education, to be an art teacher. Uh, and then when my dad got home later, my mom said, tell your dad. I says, yeah, I think I want to be an art teacher. Oh, thank goodness. I was like, you too? He's like, oh yeah, man. My, your mother told me not to say anything. <laughs> and so that was my, that was it. Two kids on a bike in my uh, cul-de-sac playing basketball with them. And uh, so, yeah, and there was that. And then for when I decided to become a, an administrator, a school administrator, I was an art teacher. I taught pre-K to third grade art, little, little guys, little tiny guys. You don't see many six foot seven black man, bald head people in pre-K to third grade art. <laughs> Um, I did step on some, but we settled out of court. But we, um, so <laughs> I had an evaluation from my principal. We sat and we met about my evaluation. It was fine. Once it was over, he said to me, this is like my third or fourth year teaching. He says, make sure you go back to school for your master's. Get, your, you know, get, get more. And I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. I'm an art teacher. You, know, I, you don't need a master's in art education. You really don't. You, you know, just another way to move up on the pay scale, but you don't need it. I says, ah, yeah. He says, seriously, you can do it. You can be an administrator. You can do whatever you want. I said, oh, administrator? Really? He says, yeah, you can be a principal. Really? So I started to look at administrators. I realized I don't like administrators. I hate them. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I couldn't stand them. They were stuck up. They didn't listen. They didn't bend. They didn't move. They were afraid to take chances. So I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be the administrator who is not stuck up, who's creative, who takes chances, who do, does things differently. And so that, that's why, I, I, all because he said to me, you need to go back and get your master's. And then he said the word administrator. So there you go. You went on, you went on to be a principal as well as superintendent, yeah. right? Yeah, I was, a, I was a, 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 a curriculum supervisor, then a vice principal, then I was a principal for most of my career and then assistant superintendent, and then superintendent. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've done it all. Yeah, I've done it all. Wow, Sherry, three amazing stories, huh? I know, I know. And so what we, our whole thing here is called fearless authenticity. And so uh, we want a lot of this conversation to be around and focused on authenticity in education. So I'll put this question out to you. Um, how challenging do you think it is to be authentic as an educator? And, you know, you might have to think about it for a second. Uh, I, I'm an adult educator, as, you know, Jim and I both are. And we certainly know that with adults, uh, they will call you out if you're not authentic. You'll, you'll find it on the little smile sheets at the end, you know? <laughs> And I gotta think, I gotta believe that kids are even more uh, direct. You know, if they, if if you're, you know, not not doing what they they think you should be doing, you'll get that feedback. So, uh, thinking about yourselves, uh, how does authenticity play into how you think about yourself as an educator, as a teacher, as a librarian? You know, where you are. I know, Stephen, you've. Um, you know, you, you've become a consultant at this point. Uh, but thinking back on your days uh, working in the system, uh, how, how challenging uh, is authenticity? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, let's start with uh, Ida. Well, um, I think 
I can define myself as this person, this educator that not, I see what I learn, what I, my trainings, my Montessori trainings, for example, and my master's in education, I see that as just a gateway, as just keys to what I need to do. And what I mean by that is when I look at my Montessori training and I want to apply it in the classroom, it is easy. It could be easy because I'm like a, Stephen said, I worked, I'm working with the like pre-K to sixth graders. But I think the challenge that I find is more among my colleagues. When you are so authentic, you become an outlier. Mm. And I don't like that. And I fight it. I fight it. Well, let's say in the Montessori training, you are supposed to give, for example, at least 10 presentations per day. I can enter a classroom in an afternoon and get to all 28 children, which they don't. And it becomes, I don't, I don't get it. I just don't, that is the problem I am, I am having. But still, it does not keep me from being authentic. Because I think it's something that we owe to students, not only to families, but these children who are hungry to just get to know something to learn something, they come around you, could you give me a presentation? Before even you ask me, I have already my lesson plans. And even if I don't have you planned for this lesson and I'm seeing that you're interested in something, well, I tweak it and bring my lesson plan into your interest. But that is not liked by my colleagues. Mm. <laughs> and that's the challenge I'm having. Mm. But it doesn't stop me. I'd rather not be liked but doing my job right. Sometimes you know, it's a dance that you need to dance, but to what point will you be on that dance floor? Wow. Anyway, that's... So, so uh, Stephen, as a, you've, you've uh, obviously had to deal with this type of situation where you have a rogue teacher, Ida. <laughs> 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 I love Ida dearly, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so you have this teacher who's a little bit, you know, not following, you know, the, the guidelines. What did you do when you had situations like that from an authentic standpoint? How would you handle something like that? Well, this, this kind of goes to my original dislike of administrators and why I became an administrator. Schools are governed by compliance. All right. So there's, there's guidelines, there's rules, there's things that you need to do. And when I say compliance, compliance is the state mandate or whatever those mandates of the, the building are. And then there's the compliance of what the, the culture is, all right, mm -hmm. what everybody expects. What I want, and this is me, and then I'll talk about what the majority of schools may do or not do. Um, what I want is I want commitment as opposed mm -hmm. to compliance. If you have someone who's committed to the cause, committed to the students, committed to the belief, committed to the values that you have arranged and had in that school, I'll take that person any day, wow. any day. So when you're talking about a teacher such as Ida who's committed, it's clearly that she's committed, but everyone else is working on the basic level of compliance because mm. compliance is Compliance is accomplishment. It is. It's a lower level of accomplishment, but it's accomplishment. 
So if you have commitment, you're going to get higher levels of accomplishment because they're committed. Now, a lot of schools, administrators and people, they work within compliance. So therefore, we are going to do this because they'll leave us alone if we do this. Mm. And you want more. And, and that's where I'm coming from. If I can get the hearts of educators like that, if I can get the, 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 the root of that, compliance takes care of itself, you know? And, you know, I, a lot of times I don't see necessarily see those, uh, those type of teachers as rogue as much as, you know, they're giving their all, they're giving their heart, they mean well. Now, Will I have conversations with that person because others are not interpreting what it is that they're saying and helping to guide them through it? Absolutely, I will. You know, and I think that's a big thing that needs to happen is that don't see it as someone who is bumping the system. Are they getting results? Hello, because that's what it ultimately comes down to. Are you getting results or not? Um, if they're getting results, then it's more of a coaching situation. And, and being authentic, even with myself, and I, you know, what. It's, it's difficult, I'll do it from an administrative perspective. It's difficult as an administrator to be truly authentic because everybody's watching what you're doing and watching what you're not doing as an administrator. They're looking at your decision-making. They're seeing, it's almost like a little mini celebrity uh, as it relates to the school system or the school district. And you have to worry about the, you know, the, the community and stuff and how they perceive your authentic, uh, how authentic you are. I, was, I felt that I was extremely, very authentic um, in the beginning of my administrative career, when I was like, I'm gonna be the creative administrator. Boy, people did not, well, they didn't, they didn't take that well at all. I had to learn how to work within the compliance system so that you can showcase those, those areas of authenticity. Yeah, I was wondering if you, uh, you know, if you bumped into some resistance along the way from that compliance versus uh, It was more than a bump. I needed airbags, uh, <laughs> I, you know, my, it's a, but you know what? My schools that I was administrators of, outrageously successful. And I, and, I, and I don't mean to be, you know, braggy here or whatever. No. My one school that I was at for eight years, I had educators from around the country come visit because they, what in the world are you, wow. In that same school and district, I got written up nine times. Mm. And a lot of the, the, the times I got written up, I said, I'll take it. I mean, it's superintendent's like, what, what do you mean you'll take it? Oh, I'll take it. Do you want representation? No, I'll take it. Give it to me. Mm. Still got my results, you know, and, and it's not like I was rubbing against the grain. It's just that I, you know, I, you know, it, it worked. It worked. Yeah. Well, Hannah. Could I just um, add to what he's saying quickly? Larry? Mm. You know, I am at a private nonprofit school and I have learned from the veterans who are not there anymore. And what I don't like, it's not because I'm not complying. I'm complying and I am happy hours. I'm not drinking. I'm going, you know, and I'm the one starting the party, all that they are doing. But when it comes to sitting and shushing some kids who are needing something, and that is not part of the method, you, and I'm not there to tell them because they are trained, but at least let me do my job. Don't drag me to something that's completely mediocre because I know already I have tasted something great. So there, I think, like you say, administration, I mean, and I talked to my administrator, I said, well, I think the standards of the school had plummeted. And why is that? Let's mm -hmm. think of that. It's not about changing my schedule or having me not 
present or give a lesson on this or that, but it's more about looking at the system that we have and pull out all the weeds. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Hannah. Oh, Ida. Hannah. I had Hannah on my mind. Hannah. <laughs> so, authenticity in you. Um, so to answer your question, it's very difficult. Um, but to piggyback off of Stephen Ida, it's all these different complexities of how to be authentic. They're coming at it, I think, from a perspective of already being in education, already being in the system, as it were. But I know that many of my generation and younger, they're going to find even that first step of being able to enter into that system very, very difficult if you're being authentic to yourself, if you're at the right institution. So it's a lot of cultural and a lot of economic and a lot of so many other things that play against you to be authentic. But once you're in, you're in. It's a lot easier to be authentic, even though you may get written up, Steve, or you may get um, pushback from administration. It's easier to be authentic because you really want to connect with kids, with the people around you. Um, and by kids, for me, it's usually college-age students, so they're still kids to me. But they can tell, both adults and younger, when you're not being authentic, when you're just spilling things out by rote, when you're just using a lesson plan because someone expects you to use a lesson plan. I try to really engage with students on their individual level and see them as people rather than just students. So, but it's taken me such a long time to get there that it's really also freeing to be authentic. It's, I feel like more of myself rather than someone that other people expect me to be. So it's getting easier, but it's always that first hurdle of, okay, I wanna be authentic, but how do I get in to show that I can be my most authentic self? So it's opening the door, getting through the door, and then settling down. <laughs> That's what it's yeah. Like. yeah, a lot of it. But it also depends on the institution you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. If it's, let's say you're in the Midwest in a super conservative, super homogenous area, I think it's really difficult, especially as a minority of all different aspects, to try and upset that apple cart because there are expectations of, well, when I was a student, I expected things to be done this way. And if there's anything to disrupt that idea of what traditional education is, you are gonna get a lot of feedback. For example, in libraries, there's this thing called um, drag queen story time that where drag queens of the local community come and read to children. And wow. they're really engaging. The students love it, the parents, there's a mixed bag, uh, and let's just say there's a lot of pushback. But it's also one of the highlights of libraries, especially nowadays. And that's just going along with the times and really representing what is authentic in terms of literacy, in terms of engagement, and just connecting with the community again. Mm. So authenticity, I think it's definitely changed in the past few years and just being mm. able to be your own self 
and show that you don't have to go along with the grain of everyone else. Thank you, Hannah. Well, good stuff. Good stuff. I have a question. And of course, I want your authentic thoughts. Um, I have a 14-year-old, my hero, and he's being homeschooled right now because of the pandemic. Um, he's also on the autistic spectrum, and he also has asthma. I don't anticipate that he will be going back to school anytime soon because I haven't seen what schools are doing to make it easier for children with special needs. That withstanding, what are your thoughts about students, grade school students, college students, returning to school during a pandemic? And, and what's your vision about what's going to happen in the immediate future? So it's two questions, thoughts about students returning during a pandemic and your vision for our students' immediate future in this type of environment. And that's open to anyone who wants to take the mic. Well, hey, I'll jump on this one. Uh, going, to, yeah, we're in a pandemic. I mean, the one thing that uh, educators everywhere immediately found out is that education can happen differently when this all went down. Now, when this all went down, you know, everybody says, oh, we did virtual learning. We did you know, homeschooling. No, you didn't. No, you did emergency virtual learning. <laughs> There's a difference. There's a difference. This is, that wasn't virtual. Last school year, end of last school year, that was, that was emergency virtual learning. We were building the plane while it was in the air during a hailstorm and it was on fire. That's what we were doing. Mm. And everybody was like, you're not doing this right. No. So. The important thing is, is that from the time that that ended until now, educators everywhere, if you didn't, shame for shame for shame, you should have reassessed how things went, thought about how you can go back and teach differently. You know, one of the statements that I say with my stand tall, who I am, when you stand tall, you don't think small. And as tall people, we have a different view of the world. We stand above, we can see things, you have a different view. We have a different, so... Once you have a different view, how dare you go back to where you were before? Ooh. Once you have a different view, once you know something different, for shame, for shame, how dare you go back? So going back in this pandemic, you know, the, the, there's people saying you should go back, you shouldn't go back, you know, things like that. I go by science. If the science says that you can't have that many people together, don't have that many people together, period. If you're going to do an A-B split schedule, I'm, I'm getting real administrative now because that's where my mind goes. You go to an A-B split schedule, an A-B-C split schedule, or a block, you know, whatever you need to do as far as your schedule is concerned to reduce the numbers and allow for your cleaning and all, well, go ahead and do that. You know, do, do all the, the necessary protocols. Thinking about what your situation is, your special needs student, I, um, I think that the, the, the educational world is still building the plane while it's in the air, while it's burning during a hailstorm with the special needs area because it is outrageously complex. It's outrageously complex. Um, so in, in that aspect, it, it, no, I, do I think special needs students, do they need to go back? Yes, because they need the consistency of what school and the services that schools can provide. 
can they physically go back because of the science of it all? No, unfortunately, I, I don't, I, my authentic self believes, no, that can't help, it can't happen. But I think that schools should be better prepared to sure. do education differently. Uh, I did a webinar um, three weeks ago and it's called, it was, it, 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 the series was the, the Great School Culture Comeback. Mm. And my specific section was, it's not business as usual. It's not. If you go back and say, well, business as usual, <laughs> fired. Get you, you're fired. So there you go. That's my thought. Thank you, Hannah. Ida, your reactions to uh, students coming back during the pandemic and your vision for what it's going to be like in the immediate future. For me, it's always going to be safety first. It's safety of the educators, safety of the staff, safety of the students, the parents. It's going to be tough, but I mean, there's no choice. It, we have to put safety of everyone first and foremost. That being said, it's going to be different. Education is going to be vastly different. Online learning is different from instruction in person. Learning from reading something on a screen is going to be very, very different from reading from a book. It's also about inequality too, because we're going to be so reliant on technology. I mean, right now we're all reliant on headphones and headsets, microphones, uh, computers, access to the internet. That's not something every family has, and it's also not something every family has readily. I'm really, really lucky that I'm in a place where I can take this webinar in a very quiet place, but what about the neighbor downstairs who has three kids, has a full-time job, their partner also has a full-time job, and it's hard to just get you know, 10 minutes of peace, let alone 30 minutes for a meeting. So it has to be, we, have also, we all have to understand that this world has changed and we have to adapt to it. But we also have to be really kind to each other and understanding. One of the things I joked with one of my new colleagues is, it's 2020, nothing to apologize for anything, anywhere mm -hmm. during this year. Because it's all so different and we're all trying to adjust to it. So even though I don't know what the future is gonna look like in terms of education, we're gonna to have to recognize that, like Steve said, it's not gonna go back to the same old business as usual. It's going to be very, very different. And oftentimes we don't know what that difference is. Mm -hmm. And so in lieu of not knowing, we just have to adapt and figure out what's best for everyone involved. So, so, so Ida, with that said, are you ready to tell students, put your mask back on? Or as an educator, what about your concerns about the students who aren't practicing social distancing, aren't making sure they wear their masks, or for the professors and other teachers, kids are coming on the campus, and are they going to abide by protocol? And how does it make one feel as that educator? Any thoughts on any of those questions? Yes. <laughs> Well, being at a regular school is one thing, but being at a Montessori school and want to apply or observe social distancing is impossible. <laughs> it's just impossible. 
And why, why is this impossible? It's simply because there is no desk and chairs. It's set up like a home environment. That's why, you know, the small people's classroom is called children's house. It's like a house. How could you, there is nothing that you can say to one child, stay put, stay right here. This is your area. It's impossible. There is freedom of movement, freedom of speech, and freedom of choice. They can choose wherever, whatever they want. They can move at any given time, unless it is a collective like gathering. And even that, they can put, they don't ask for permission. There is a structure that is already built in. and They will observe that. So I still don't know how we're going to do it. Like, you know, Hannah and uh, Stephen said, I honestly put safety first because right before the pandemic, what we observed was not only students, but staff, people were just falling like flies. I mean, people were sick nonstop. Mm. A point that we said we need maybe two days off to just back it, the building and have it sprayed or something. Because this is the first time I'm hearing like strep nose, <laughs> strep throat, I know. But yes, you never know what you <laughs> But again, I think by being in the private, private sector, we have some times to justify why is it that we're collecting tuition <laughs> in order to keep staff. So it becomes very complex and difficult. We're getting, I, I haven't had a summer really. I'm trying to really say, okay, I want some time with my family because I never work on summertime, but bombarded, I'm being bombarded by meetings and, uh, you know, things that you have to read and respond to. But I, I just love the analogy that uh, Stephen had given. This, something's burning here and we are right in it. It's an emergent situation. We're building, you know, the safety protocols while things are happening. And I think it will take a while, like Hannah said. I mean, mm. I, I think we want to show good faith that, yes, we want students to come back. We can even have a hybrid <laughs> uh, set up here. We can have two days with half of the students. That's what our school is observing or wanting to do. But every week, something comes up from the governor. Every <laughs> hour. <laughs> Matter of fact, he, he made two announcements three minutes ago. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I said, all oh, these hours of meetings are gone. Yeah. Yeah, well, everything you did is shut down, right? Exactly. Go on. I said, let's wait until August. That's what I've been telling them. Let's wait and see. And we do not need to go back right away. My, my thinking is, and I think what, you know, what would be safer for everybody? Safety first. I cannot help a child if I'm not well. I cannot mm. help a child if I'm not well. And if I am not well and I bring it in, guess what? Everybody else is getting it. And it mm. becomes this dominance effect. And that's what had happened actually when we opened all these businesses right away, boom, in Minnesota. The things that the cases just uh, jumped. <laughs> the number of cases. And I said, well, there we go again. Wait until we open the schools. Wow. students belong to some families and those families will take it to their work. It is going to happen at a rate that we would not expect. I would think what would be best will be to just um, 
continue whatever we were doing. I know it will be challenging when I say continue, I'm hesitant here because it's a Montessori model that you need the material, you need to touch. We go by touch, mm. we go by the senses. That will be basically impossible, but we need to pull back to just eradicate what's happening, hopefully, and just stay home and do the teaching at a distance for the few months of fall and see what is going to transpire. Wow, good stuff. Sherry, your thoughts on that? Well, I, was, I, I actually realized that we haven't, um, you know, pulled Cynthia in to see what's happening in the chat. <laughs> Hello, uh, this is amazing. So the, the, the contributions you all are making are um, really, I think people, uh, Amanda had mentioned the whole piece around compliance, um, that it allows us to go through the day without critically considering creative solutions that may fall outside the lines of compliance. Um, effective results outside of compli compliance are often difficult to measure. Um, so again, it's back to the compliance versus commitment piece. Um, I said I have a lot of respect for teachers, which I do. I raised two boys and we were in the public system and private school system. So I have my own experience with educators, good and bad. Um, so yeah, I think um, that's where we are at this point. Okay, thank you. All right. Yeah, I think... What's interesting for me, and, and um, just to answer your question, James, what's interesting to me is uh, when I worked with a lot of our trainers about shifting over to virtual training versus face-to-face -face training, the biggest thing I had to cure people of is this mindset that face-to-face -face is better than virtual. Mm. <clears throat> because if people go in with a mindset that says, oh, this this isn't going to work. You know, we can't connect with people. We can't do it this way. It's, it's, it's not as good. I said, that's, that's going to come through and how you interact, you know, how relaxed you are, you know, what you do with people, how authentic you are. Um, so that mindset gets in the way. And I actually have a couple of people who are now going, I think I like virtual better. <laughs> Bye. And it's interesting because there, there are students now who are out there who are saying you know what i i'm digging this virtual you know there's there's some students that, that love it my son who's a very social person he's in student council he's in the band he's you know he he rocked it during the, the emergency virtual learning right i mean he every morning he was on a computer he was doing his reports he was setting them in he took his breaks to watch pokemon and then he came back <laughs> at it my baby girl she's in, in seventh grade going into eighth grade knocked it out of the park. And she, they, they're both like, this isn't too bad. My oldest daughter, oh, we don't got enough time for that one. But <laughs> some students, just like instructors, like you're saying, uh, uh, Sherry, you're finding out, you know what? There's some benefit with that. And it is a mindset of how you go into it and how, how you know, if you're going into it saying that you're all right with it, this is good, then you got something. Again, compliance versus commitment, once you go through it, then all of a sudden you're like, hey, it's no bad. You shift over to this commitment side and now you're, you're making it really happen. That's good, that's good. Another question, I, uh, when I went into my research authenticity, I went in thinking that authenticity was either or, either authentic or inauthentic. 
I came out thinking authenticity was more or less degrees of authenticity. But my question is, during your time as an educator, either currently or in the past, when did you find yourself being more authentic? And when did you find yourself being less authentic? What situations? And again, anyone can jump on that. When did you find yourself being more authentic? And what situations did you find yourself being less authentic? Either with students or with peers or with leaders or, or, or with family. So this is a personal and or professional question. When did you find yourself being more or less authentic? Ida looks like she's ready to jump in on this one. <laughs> Ida, mic check, mic check, mic check. Oh. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think we each know what is good and what is not good. Sometimes we choose when we comply, we can comply to fit in. And I do. I mean, I, I, I do. There are some situations that you know that you do know that you're not giving your best, but, you know, everybody's doing this and you just want to. But deep down, I know that I can do more, for example. And I think Stephen mentioned, you know, pointed to that that culture. But I found myself more authentic when I had these pillars in the school um, that made that school be what it is nationwide and nationally, internationally. Mm. People will come and visit this school from Japan, from anywhere around the world, because it was authentic. And when I first got hired, I did not sleep that night. Wow. I said, how can I just play in this game? These people, they are just, it was real. And I just loved it. And I knew that I was going to bring myself to that point, emulate what they are doing to be really, and being myself too, not losing myself in the whole situation, mm -hmm. but at the same time, really delivering. <laughs> that was authentic. The school was authentic, and now we're revising actually all that we have on our um, parent notebook, and what we say that we do. Are we doing what we say that we are doing? Because so many had pointed to us that it is not as authentic as it used to be. So <laughs> somebody came to me and say, "Actually, well, the principal said you're right," and I say, "I know I am right. I'm sorry, but if a sixth grader could write a story." a few pages with a beautiful handwriting, I'm sorry, not a sixth grader, a six years old, with a beautiful handwriting. And now in the elementary level, we cannot have that. There is a problem. We need to recheck ourselves and not be ashamed of that and say, what is that we're not doing? Can we be as how we were before and how we were, were not, was not bad? Can we go back to our authentic path? What the founders of the school put forward for us to really thrive. And that's what we're doing right now. We, we've been held accountable by many institutions, many, many organizations saying that, are you doing what you say that you're doing? Mm. Yes. And um, when I'm less authentic, it's when, <laughs> and I, you know, it's difficult for me. I can comply very well, but it is difficult for me to be fake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever experienced you as fake. I, I, yeah. That is the problem I'm having. 
because if I have some colleagues who tell me after like a meeting that we're having, I think who would tell me after the assistant principal introduced everybody and said my credentials and saying I have two trainings and two of them literally got up as we go into our classroom and say, well, you always take the spotlight. Because parents were coming to ask questions about how do you do X, Y, Z. This is the time that we have parents come into the classroom in the school and we treat them like their children. We give them lessons to have them taste the Montessori experience, what their child is learning. And it is, they, it's an eye opening. I mean, they just love it. They, they just cannot believe that this is what their children are experiencing in the school. But I think it's more about when you, you know, playing like a low, I'm not even to tell you to share it. I'm not even sharing uh, my, my PhD um, situation with them because I just don't want that jealousy to, to come through that will intervene with what I'm doing with them. I, I, it's sad. That is sad. It is very sad. You're but you're brilliant. Well, that's the what to me what it sounds like is you you you're you don't feel able to bring your whole self into the into well but the job. when uh, you're right but when, when I am with the students guess what I mean parents come back you know with wonderful feedback and that I think they don't like I don't like to have that I I like to be challenged even by families and in fact when I was borrowed by a charter school here they told me they had like 30 34% of their test scores and when I got there, because the principal was a colleague of my actual school, and she opened a school through a grant, and said, well, we need to move to another building, and we don't have money. We Funding stop, and we need our test scores to go higher. And I say, Anne, I, you know that in Montessori, we don't teach you the test. I'm just going to do what I know how to do best, and we'll see. Well, I got to that, those classrooms. I mean, it was quite interesting. I did not even know it was the professional that I was working with who said, guess what? The test scores are out and our classroom has 100% in, in math and 88% in reading. And they were jubilating. And I said, this is, this is nothing to jubilate. We have to all have that. Let's just bring the whole school to that point. No, you're the only black teacher. She was so funny. And I said, no, let's not go there. Let's just work all together. And if what I did worked, let's all do it. And if somebody else did something that worked wonderfully, I want to learn that. I'm always open to learning. But again, it is just more about when you're trying to just... Uh, curtail your abilities simply because somebody does not like how you will shine. It's not about me. I want to see what children are getting. I want to see the, the best part of my work, the reward is when you see a child who never knew or never thought he could yeah. read, cry and shout, I can read. I, I can read. I mean, I had experienced that and it this was actually the granddaughter of the principal. And I say, no, she is going to read. I'm going to make mm -hmm. sure she, before she goes to elementary. And that's what I say to my colleagues. We should never, as the training, the Montessori training say, we should never send children 
into the elementary level in first grade without them knowing how to read or write, mostly reading because that's the key to the world for them. And you said she screamed and shout, I can read. Let's see that again. Oh, yeah. She was crying. I, this is what I would do before they go, to, to, before they go home. As they, their parents are waiting or coming, we would take a few minutes to just make a circle and I would read a book. And you want to always look for that, those children, at least in the mountains or even in the, in the traditional system, those who are not coming to you or those who are not talking. Because this I learned from the veteran that I co-taught with, <laughs> say, you want to pay attention to those students who are quiet. You don't want them not to disturb, not to just be quiet because you don't want them to disturb you. And sure enough, because if not, they fall into the cracks. Sure. You just, sure. just want to see who is not talking, who is not participating, who is not, and pay attention to those also who are always participating. Are they doing it because what they know or of nervousness or it's, it's a dance that is just a, you said it's a dance. I, I love the aspect of dance because the question was more or less. It is a dance. Steve, Hannah, any thoughts on when you are more authentic or when you were authentic as an educator? This dance that mm. I was talking about. Well, for, for me, there was a time when I was, uh, I was a building principal at the one school. Uh, it was about my fifth or sixth year there. Um, and one of the things I prided myself on is knowing the students, you know, being involved, knowing what's going on. And that year, a lot of things went down in the district, in the world of education, and I was in my office way more than I wanted to. I didn't really know the students that well. And to me, my authenticity is that, that relationship building. And it, I struggled a lot with that. It, it, it bothered it bothered a mess out of me. I, I just, you know, I, and the thing is, as much as I says, and you know, you say, you know, you put in there what you really want. If you want to be with those kids, you will. You didn't know what I had on my plate. You know, I, I, I had administrivia up to here, and I'm a tall guy to begin with. So it's that being less authentic based off of what my expectations as my position was. That bothered me immensely. Um, and, it, and it took until the next year, midway, yeah, I'd say about midway that next year to be able to get back out to really get some students. What I ended up doing is I ended up, I made a, a club, an after-school club, a culture climate club that I was in charge of. <laughs> Knowing good and well, I didn't have time for this. But I purposely made a culture and climate club got students in that culture climate club and forced myself mm. once every other week to, 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 to work with these kids on the school culture climate, you know, making posters, come up with themes, doing little, you know, stuff, all that. But still, it, it I, had, I had to, the thing is when you're, when you're less authentic, the goal, I think, and you tell me this or not through your research as such, Dr. Jim, that you have to take note of it. You have to realize when it's happening and not settle for yourself. Mm. You, know, for, you know, forget everybody else, <clears throat> for yourself. Don't settle for yourself like, you know what, it's the job, it's what I got. Mm. No, it might take a minute, it might not be immediate, but you need to do something about that. So 
that was one time that I was less authentic and it, and I, I had to step out and do something for that, uh, in that aspect. So, so Hannah, we, we read one of the most difficult books I've ever read <laughs> together. <laughs> Cyber semiotics. <laughs> and, uh, I have never, I, I mean, first of all, again, brilliant woman you are. And I, uh, I've never experienced you as being inauthentic. Mm. Uh, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say. <laughs> um, so for me, it was, it's been a journey. Let's say that, um, growing up, it was hard for me to be myself because of social expectations, cultural, religious. Um, so it took me until I was an adult really to understand who I was wow. as myself. And it took me until I was an adult through a lot of therapy and medication as well to really figure out, Oh, this is who I am. Mm. I mean, this other person when I was younger was also who I am, but this is who I am as the best person that I could be. So for me, authenticity was, it's been a journey because it's difficult to pre present yourself as a professional and really teach others if you don't know who yourself is as a person. So it, for me, being authentic has only recently been a thing where I can come to the forefront of my mind of I'm more cognizant of my effect and my emotions and my mental well-being in order to be a better educator, in order to be a better librarian, and also just not be as angry as all the time. I mean, there's a lot to be angry about right now, but <laughs> I was a lot angrier before. And so I think that that ability to know yourself and that ability to take pause and really care about yourself as a person. And like Ida was mentioning earlier in one of our previous uh, questions, just really, because if you don't take care of yourself, how can you expect to take care of kids? How can you expect to take care of your students? So for me, authenticity, it just really naturally sort of happened. And it's a shame that I only recognize it as an adult. I, it, my childhood would have been a lot different if, if I was more authentic, but it was also, it's also my own journey to get to that point. It's also everyone else's individual journey to get to their own authentic point. It might happen sooner, it might happen later, but it's there for everyone. And so for me, it's, it came off during job interviews. It came off during presentations. It came off during my interactions with peers and my supervisors and um, students I teach. It just came out more and the response I get, the feedback I get is so much more rewarding because I don't question myself. I don't question my experience. I don't question my knowledge. I'm not second guessing oh, they must just be saying that to be polite. I'm more confident in myself as an individual and a human being and a professional because I'm being more authentic, because I'm not pretending to be someone else. I mean, imposter syndrome is a little bit in there still, but 
it's getting better because I'm more confident that I am the best me. So we, we are at 12.59. I can't believe a whole hour has gone by. I could, I don't know about you, but I can sit here and pretty much for most of the afternoon, rest of the afternoon. But um, once again, I want to thank Hannah, Steve, and Ida for joining us today. Um, and this will be, this has been recorded and we'll be sharing that with everyone. So uh, Sherry and James, any final words? Rich discussion, rich, authentic, real, vulnerable. Yeah. I just love y'all. And, uh, you know, it was, it's good to see you. It was really nice to meet you, Steve. Uh, you too. And uh, good luck with your book. Thank you. Thank you. You want to give it a little bit of a plug here? Oh, right. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the book is called Stand Tall Leadership. You can go to Amazon right now, put in Stand Tall Leadership. It'll pop up. It's coming out August 25th. Um, and it has everything in there. It talks about compliance versus commitment. It talks about uh, efficiency versus effectiveness. I talk about how to get results. Um, I, I, I how, to, how to talk to parents on the phone. I have a parent phone call flow chart of exactly how, because that's one thing. I'm serious. Teachers, I don't care if it's a positive phone call or not. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, please don't go off on me. <laughs> and so it's a flow chart of exactly how to talk to parents on the phone so that it works out well. And it's oh. been I've been using it for over 15 years. It works phenomenally. So it, it's a ton of things in there. Even though it's called Stand Tall Leadership, I truly believe all educators are leaders. I, I really do. And even if not, uh, you know, education, educators is the last noble profession on earth. And I, I truly believe that, you know, everybody can benefit from it. So yeah, go, go check it out, Stand Tall Leadership. Um, I got a, in an hour, I have a webinar I'm doing called Improve Your Virtual Teaching. So, you know, I, I'm doing that on how to improve your teaching virtually so that you can really have an effect on your students. So I'm doing a lot of great stuff. Thank you very much for the time. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. All right, thank you so much. And take care. Yeah, in two you. weeks, we will be back with Fearless Authenticity and the Legal Profession. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're oxymorons. <laughs> <laughs>